0: the recent identification of Francis Wayne Alexander, who was Gacy victim number five, the exciting new field of forensic genealogy continues to garner more and more attention from the public at large, and deservedly so. As this hybrid scientific advancement has led multiple organizations that specialize in this field to crack cold cases, such as the Golden State Killer, where after decades, the killer was finally identified and also to identify John and Jane Doe's that have been unidentified often for long periods of time. Because this is such important work and because we are driven here at Defense Diaries to help identify the last five Gacy victims, we think it's important for our listeners to understand exactly what forensic genealogy is. Because we are confident That it's the work being done in this field that will ultimately lead to the final five victims being identified. So what is it? The easiest explanation is that it combines DNA analysis with reverse engineered family trees. See, in terms of DNA being used in solving crimes, it's not magic, meaning that the perpetrator could commit a gruesome murder and leave DNA such as hair, blood, or tissue all over the crime scene, which will then be collected by the evidence text, and then will be sent to the lab, which will extract a DNA sample, and then will compile that data to create a DNA profile, which will be uploaded into the database. Now, this is where reality shifts from what you see on CSI and Criminal Minds and what happens in real life. On the show, they plug in the data, the computer whirls, insurance, and bing. They find a match. In reality, law enforcement can only find a match in the database at its disposal if, in fact, that offender's DNA profile is already in CODIS, which is an acronym for a Combined DNA Index System. What this means, for the most part, is that the offender was previously arrested and convicted and was required to submit a DNA sample. So if you have a killer out there who has never been arrested, let alone convicted, there is no way that law enforcement is finding a match in CODIS. In April of 2021, CODIS hit a milestone as the 20 millionth profile was uploaded to the database. A majority of these come from convicted offenders and the rest of the profiles are evidentiary, meaning that the DNA was collected from the crime scene and then was entered into the system. In the case of Wayne Alexander, obviously he went missing long before DNA was a thing. So there was a 0% probability that his sample would be in CODIS. Same goes for any of the cold cases out there which predated DNA. They simply cannot be in the system because it didn't exist. The Cook County Sheriff had determined that out of the remaining six unidentified victims, that it was victim number five that could provide the best biological sample to send to the lab to extract suitable DNA from. Once this determination was made, the sheriff's office sent a molar and a piece of victim number five's jawbone off to the DNA lab. The lab was able to extract DNA and create a profile from the molar, which resulted in relatively high quality whole genome sequencing data. Once law enforcement had this in their hands, they had to search for a partner that could take the profile and cross-match it with their databases, which are different from the databases that law enforcement must use. Cook County landed on DNA Doe Project as the partner to proceed with. DNA Doe uses the databases GenMatch and FamilyTree.com. Now, there is a difference between databases such as 23andMe and Ancestry.com, which do not share the profiles that individuals upload with law enforcement in CODIS. CODIS is exclusively limited to convicted offenders and evidentiary samples. Genealogical sites such as Ancestry.com are exclusively private citizen profiles that have been uploaded to determine family lineage. Ancestry and 23andMe both give the option for people to upload their profiles to databases such as GenMatch, but it is not done by the company without the consent of the customer. So once DNA Doe got the profile from Cook County, they ran it through GenMatch, and within eight hours, they got a hit. We were in attendance at the press conference, and the following is Karen Fulham Binder of DNA Doe, who was there as well, and who was kind enough to take the time to explain to us the process by which they were able to make the identification.
1: So my name is Taryn Binder. I'm an investigative genetic genealogist with DNA Doe Project. I'm also a registered nurse by day. So this is an all-volunteer job. DNA Doe Project, uh, we're a 501c3 nonprofit organization. We're 100% made up of volunteers. um, And all of us uh, do different roles in the genetic genealogy process to identify John and Jane Doe. So at this point, we've identified over 70 John and Jane Doe's. A lot of them are homicide victims, um, like the Gacy victim that uh, we recently identified. Um, And a lot of them are also, you know, victims of suicide or other types of deaths. So um, really all kinds of people we've identified. Um, We started our organization in 2017. I joined the project in 2018, and I've worked on uh, probably a dozen publicly solved cases. Uh, the way that we work is, we um, we use DNA to solve our cases, but it's not the traditional way um, that DNA has been used. So for a long time, uh, DNA one to one testing has been available, and that's through the de- the database called CODIS. So basically, in CODIS, a person that has a missing family member can enter their DNA, and if that person is found, then their DNA can be entered into the same database. And those two will match one another because they're, you know, father and son or, you know, maybe brother and sister or a direct, a direct relative. Whereas at DNA Doe Project, we're doing something called familial DNA or genetic genealogy. Um, there's a couple different terms for it. But what we're doing is we're using publicly sourced databases to use DNA matches that are more distant. So not just, you know, brother, sister, mother, father but cousins, second cousins, third cousins, fourth cousins, and fifth cousins, um, to build very large family trees and find common ancestors between those DNA matches. When we find a common ancestor couple, we build back down because uh, when we find a common ancestor couple between two of a John or Jane Doe's DNA matches, we know that that common ancestor is probably also an ancestor of the John John or Jane Doe. So one thing that I found out and you'll have to like fact check this, but if a person so the missing person's database is different than the criminal database. So they don't necessarily compare one to another. So if a person that went missing was also convicted of rape a long time ago, um they're they're not gonna compare those two. They don't put the felon database with the unidentified person's database. So you won't see them match up. So we've even had John and Jane Doe's where um, the, the, the Jane Doe's mother has been in jail before. And so you would think that their, their DNA was on file. But because they don't compare the unidentified persons to the felony database, um, it doesn't, they don't match those up. The only thing that they're comparing unidentified persons to is the missing person family member's database. CODIS and um, NIS, which is uh, the other the missing persons one and NDIS, and um, those are populated from either. So if, it, if it's human remains like a John or Jane Doe, then they do an extraction of DNA from the human remains. And then for like the family members or for the felony database, they're doing mouth swabs of those of those folks, and it's just it goes directly into the database. University of North Texas does like the DNA extraction process, but there's no, like for example, if I had a missing family member and I've done an ancestry DNA test, there's nothing I can do with that ancestry DNA test to get it into CODIS or Endis. It's um, it's it's a separate thing. It's run by you know law enforcement. So in the case of Francis Wayne Alexander, um, also known as J.C. Victim Number Five, um, the lab process is really how how we start out. So I wish it would was as easy as we just you know get the genetic profile, but there's a lot of stuff that has to happen before that. So, uh, molar tooth uh, was sent for extraction um, to a lab called Astraea Forensics in California. After that, um, after the DNA is extracted, it goes for sequencing, and that was performed by Hudson Alpha Discovery in Alabama. Um, after sequencing, so that's where uh, basically a computer sequences the DNA. After that, the sequenced sequenced file needs to be converted into something that we can use for match. So that's the bioinformatics process. And that was done by um, my associate, Kevin Lord, at Saber Investigations, who also works at DNA Doe Project. After bioinformatics, that's when we finally have our file. That whole process that I just described takes anywhere from weeks to months, um, even longer than that, depending on how many extractions are required. Luckily, in this case, there was really good quality DNA inside that tooth, so we only went through the process one time. After that, um, the file is uploaded to GEDmatch, and in this case, only GEDmatch was needed because um, Mr. Alexander had very good matches on GEDmatch. So uh, we were able to build out a family tree and come up with a candidate within eight hours. In a lot of our other cases, it's not so easy. We use two different databases. Jed match and Family Tree DNA, and sometimes even then we don't have really good matches. So in this case, we were really lucky. Um, Mr. Alexander was from the United States. He had uh, good matches on on GED match, and so we didn't even need to upload to Family Tree DNA. Um, so after we provide a lead to uh, law enforcement there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes after that. And so we don't usually have confirmation of who the John or Jane Doe was until a long time after that. So um, in this case, we provided the name uh, Francis Wayne Alexander to uh, Detective Moran at Cook County. And um, from that point, he needed to go through the process of making the identification confirmed. So there's a couple of different ways that they can do that. I've had cases where the, case was, the, the person was confirmed by dental records because you know they had dental records on file somewhere and they were able to match them that way. Sometimes I've had John and Jane Doe's that were fingerprinted in another state and they were able to confirm that way. But most of the time it requires a DNA specimen. So in this case, that's what happened. Uh, Detective Moran collected a DNA sample from the victim's mother and then um, it took some time to get everything confirmed through another lab. So that process uh, can also be a little bit lengthy, especially during the pandemic when labs were, you know, not running on their normal schedules and everything. Um, But in this case, it was confirmed by uh, DNA. And then they're also doing a lot of, you know, traditional detective work because, of course, they wanted to know why was, um, you know, Mr. Alexander in Chicago? um, How did he end up there? And they were able to sort of nail down the timeline a little bit tighter to um, when the crime occurred. I really hope that we get all of the other victims. Um, I think that we can help solve them. Um, one thing with the Gacy victims is that most of them were Caucasian. And um, Caucasians really have a good chance of getting of getting solved um, using our genetic genealogy process because there's really good representation of Caucasian people in the databases, GEDmatch and Family Tree DNA. So typically, like with this case, um, you'll find good matches and um, a pretty straightforward solve of the case. So I, w- I really look forward to it, and I hope that they are um, planning to send us those other uh, victims so that we can get them all identified and get this thing closed once and for all. If anybody wants to help DNA Doe Project solve more cases, there are a lot of ways to help. Number one is to upload your own DNA profile to uh, Match or to Family Tree DNA, either one. Um, you can do that if you've taken any commercial DNA test. If you've taken a test on 23andMe or Ancestry DNA, keep in mind we cannot access those databases. So what you would have to do is download your DNA from one of those and upload it into GED Match um, or Family Tree DNA. That really helps us to solve our cases because especially our cases that don't have good matches, one match can make all the difference. So the more matches in the database, the better. The other thing people can do to help is to look at and share our cases on social media. There could always be a person that recognizes somebody that, um, you know, that if, if we know where they're from, then that's one thing. If we can share it to that area, then somebody might recognize them. And then the third thing that you can do to help is to donate. Uh, we are a nonprofit organization. A lot of our costs go to covering the lab fees for law enforcement agencies that can't afford to do the lab work on their cases. So every dollar counts too. And you can donate at DNA dot Project.org. You can also follow us on social media at DNA Doe Project on Twitter and DNA Doe Project on Facebook.
0: That is amazing work that was done by both law enforcement and DNA Doe Project. And it's a shining example of how important this work is that's being done. So as we have consistently said in this podcast, as we grow in numbers and more and more people listen to the pod, if there is anyone out there that has a missing person in their family or that was a friend or an associate and they went missing between 72 and 78, call the hotline that we've established at eight four four seventy-eight. Vic 23. That's 84478 Vic 23. So that we can continue to work to get the last 5 victims identified because every single one of these victims deserves to have their name back and the families deserve to know. <laughs> Welcome to Defense Diaries. I'm your host, Bob Mata, and this is episode 23. To slow down or descend. We left off with the creep sitting in the library in the basement of Sir Mac Memorial Hospital, giving yet another statement to the authorities, this time with his lawyer sitting right next to him. Apparently, Amaranti was told that whatever Gacy told them during this interview would not be used in evidence against his client. Amaranti then passed this little turd of information onto his client, who, on advice of counsel, spilled his guts again.
2: Uh, you remember this guy now? Did you remember him before? guy in November? So, you know when that, that came out? Um, when I talked to them in January, I think this you know. meeting, the fucking meeting they had. Sounds yeah, well, terrible. Right, okay. Well, Sam thought it was a good idea. There's a representation that they're not going to use any of that shit as evidence. That wasn't the impression that... It's the impression that that I had. It. I don't know. It Sam it was right. right. Yes, Sam, no, but it was a representation made by him. Oh, know that? Oh, yeah. Do they know that? Well, I assume they know it. representation was made by Sullivan, and it takes an affidavit. But they don't have apparently they don't have anything typed up that we've received out of those meetings yet. Well, they're holding the fact of stuff. Do you recall? uh, Yeah, which what we're going to take care of on the twenty
0: fifth. So, at some point during this interview, Gacy tells law enforcement where they can find Rob's jacket. And on January 4th at 9.45 a.m., Lieutenant Braun passes this information on to Kozensak, who straps on his Keds and runs full speed over to Gacy's house to search in the hidey hole that has eluded every single cop that has torn the house apart for the last two weeks. Now, that of course didn't happen, but what did occur was that after Braun called Kozensak, he said, meet me at Gacy's house so that I can show you where the jacket was stashed. So Kozenzak makes his way over to the house and Braun brings him into the pantry area. They remove a couple of boxes of foodstuffs, a can of stewed tomatoes, and a bottle of pine saw, at which time a small hole at the base of the south wall is observed. Kozenzak points his flashlight and when he held it just right, the blue material of the jacket shone like a piece of gold from within. I got you, motherfucker. Kozenzak thought to himself. He then jumped down into the completely excavated crawl space and worked his way to under where the pantry is situated. He spots a paper bag from Dominic's finer foods that is covering up the hole, which he carefully moves to the side. Once he does this, the jacket, in its full glory, is completely visible. We got one, he yells, at which time Al Taylor of the Cook County Sheriff's Police runs over and takes multiple pictures of the jacket in its hidden position. See, Kozenczak does know that a picture of where a piece of evidence is discovered has to be taken in order to establish a chain of custody. So after Taylor was done doing the job properly, Kozenzak makes his way back upstairs to remove said item. The light blue ski jacket, complete with a hood and a brand name of Pacific Trail they also recovered a small piece of tin foil that appeared to be packaging for a cigar. Kozenzak called Raphael Tovar over, who incidentally was never not at Gacy's house post-arrest because, well, that's where the cameras were, and had him recover the items and bag them, all while being witnessed by evidence tech Tom Richard. The items were initialed by both officers with the recovery time of 10 a.m. on January 4th being noted. Kozenczak asked Taylor to take a few more picks. Then the items were transported to the displaced Police Department. Man, I's dotted and T's crossed. That is how you establish a chain of custody. Well done, Kozenczak. We, of course, 43 years later, know exactly why Kozenczak was so damn thorough with this particular piece of evidence, don't we? Kozenczak then returns to the station and immediately calls the Peast home. We got the son of a bitch, Elizabeth. We really got him this time, he tells Mrs. Peast immediately upon her answering the phone. He can hear her audibly gasp on the other end. She thinks that they have found Rob's body. Oh, no, 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 no. We haven't found Rob, Elizabeth, no. We, We located his jacket in Gacy's house. He had it crammed in some hole in the pantry. He waited for a response. She did not exhibit the kind of relief that he was expecting. As a matter of fact, she didn't say a word. Well, I'm gonna send Paquel over later to have you positively ID the jacket. Okay, she said quietly before hanging up the phone. At 7.15 p.m., Officer Pakel arrived at the peace's home with a black duffel bag that housed a sealed evidence bag containing the light blue ski jacket that had been recovered earlier in the day. Mr. and Mrs. Peast and Rob's siblings, Ken and Kerry, gathered in the living room. Piquel told them what they already knew, that a jacket believed to be similar to Rob's had been discovered hidden in Gacy's home. Before showing the family the jacket, Piquel inquired as to where the jacket had been purchased. Elizabeth Peace answered that she had purchased the jacket two years ago at Spiegler's department store in Des She went on to describe the jacket as a light blue down-filled jacket with an attached hood. Piquel asked the family if there were any rips or tears in the jacket that they could recall. The family all replied in the negative. They were also asked if they recalled any mending or sewing being done to the jacket. Again, a negative response. Finally, Piquel inquired as to whether the jacket had any distinguishable marks or stains. The family, one by one, answered no. Piquel removed the evidence bag from the duffel and held it up for the family to view. Immediately, both Rob's brother, Ken, and his sister stated that without a doubt that was their brother's jacket. They both explained that they had worn the jacket several times themselves over the last couple of years. Mrs. Peace took the bag out of Piquel's hands and with her husband, they closely examined the jacket. They stated they were positive that this was their son's jacket. Piquel showed them the three other items that were recovered near the jacket, a yellow toothbrush, a small piece of foil, and the Dominic's paper bag. None of those items were familiar to anyone in the family. Pickel gently asked for the evidence bag back from Mrs. Peast. She complied, handing it back over to him. Mrs. Peace then told Piquel that her son had been wearing young jockey underwear and that they were colored, probably blue, but couldn't be certain other than the fact that they were not white. Piquel noted this and recalled that a pair of soiled, yellow undershorts had been recovered from the Gacy house during the search on the 13th. He didn't mention this to them. Piquel thanked them for their time and told them that they would be kept informed of any further developments. With that, he exited the peace's warm home, the Arctic air instantly lashing against his face. He muttered, fucking awful, under his breath as he closed the front door behind him, leaving the devastated family to try and deal with the realization that their beloved son and brother was gone. At the medical examiner's office, Dr. Stein, feeling the pressure of the impending court date on the 10th, had been mandated by Bill Kunkel to start identifying the victims. Stein informed him that dental and medical records were starting to filter in from the families of missing boys. And as of January 6th, three of the creep's victims had been identified through the use of dental records. Johnny Bukovich, who was the second victim, recovered from under the concrete in Gacy's garage, James Mazzara and Dale Landigan both had been recovered from the Desplaines River. Kunkel wanted more. He wanted to indict Gacy with as many counts of murder as he could on January 10th. And this meant he needed identified victims and that he would have to impanel a secret grand jury in very short order. The clock was ticking. And Stein, well, he was up to the task. Not only was he up to the task, but he found time in his busy schedule to conduct an interview on WMAQ radio, wherein he made what I believe may have been the most egregious violation of the gag order at any point prior to the trial, as it all but ensured that Gacy could never have a fair trial, in Cook County or anywhere else for that matter, when he stated, quote, that the fashion in which the bodies were buried under Gacy's house indicated a sane person could have done this and could go to the electric chair, we found an orderly, built-in graveyard." End quote. Wow. Now, despite the fact that what he said may be 100% accurate, if you were in a position of authority in a case like this, which he was, and quite frankly, was probably the most commonly interviewed official, especially during the excavation, you cannot come out to the press and make what is without question a legal determination as to Gacy's mental state prior to trial, to the world at large. You're asking why, Bob? Gacy was a piece of shit, and Stein was right. And yes, Gacy was a piece of shit. But what a statement like that does pre-trial is that it creates a legitimate Appellate issue that Gacy cannot receive a fair trial. You know what happens when an appellate court determines that a defendant did not receive a fair trial? They reverse it and they send it back to the trial court to let them try and deal with it again. Do you want the families of the victims to have to go through a second trial to go through the horrors associated with testifying about their dead son again? you want to delay justice by god knows how long it would take to cure the problem of a completely tainted jury pool good luck trying to find 12 people that haven't heard about this case and who haven't already formed an opinion as to the creeps guilt or innocence that's a near impossible task to find the 12 jurors that will fit that bill so that's why the cops the lawyers the doctors and the witnesses can't just say whatever the hell they want before trial. It throws a wrench into the slowly spinning wheels of justice, plain and simple. The rules are there for a reason, like them or not. Despite all that I've just told you, the trial by media of the creep continues on a daily basis as article after article is being published in Chicago Tribune, then being picked up by the Associated Press and then run nationally no stone is being left unturned by the press gacy's family and friends and former employees are being hounded for interviews surviving victims are surfacing many of which are anxious to speak about their encounters the families of missing boys are being sought out and some are giving interviews while others do not want their private lives being broadcast to the world and of course the leaks the investigating officers who supply the press with details about the case that should not be disclosed to the public. Kozenczak himself stated openly to the press that they had recovered the wallets of John Zick and Greg Godzik from Gacy's home during one of the recent searches. The other angle that the press is sinking its fangs into is that Gacy was known to have been gay and that many of his victims appeared to have been gay as well. As we have previously discussed in the pod, we live in a vastly different time now, as we've evolved as a society. In the late 70s and early 80s, gays were considered to be deviants, which is of course absurd, but back then, that appears to have been the collective mindset, which resulted in most gays having to live their lives in secret, choosing to remain closeted so as to avoid being stigmatized by friends, families, and coworkers. The relevance of this is that law enforcement in large part ignored crimes that were being committed against gay men, as we have come to know very intimately during the course of this podcast, which clearly allowed Gacy to keep operating without fear of being caught. And if he was, he would merely state that it was consensual. And that was that. No charges filed. In addition, the cops then... And even now believe that the tip lines that were being utilized to try to help identify victims were not receiving the volumes of calls that would be expected, because families did not want the fact that their son was gay to be the last thing that everyone would know about them. So quite simply, they didn't make the call. Now, as I sit here today, this concept is so alien to me that it's difficult for me to wrap my mind around the reality of it, but I must admit that it is a viable explanation that after the gay angle of the Gacy case was revealed, that the tip lines went silent. It's such a sad indictment of the American state of mind back in the 70s and 80s, and equally as bad as that it's beyond disservice to these young men who lost their lives. Yeah, and and, you know, a lot of people have always speculated that the that the quote unquote homosexual aspects of this case are what's preventing families from coming forward. And in some cases I do think maybe there is a little bit of hesitation, but I don't I don't think that's prevented people from going all the way with finding out their son. I think in some cases it's just they're removed from from the case now, they live in another state, they're in their own world. When
3: the case first broke out. I was back on a desk for in, working inside for a few days. And after the case broke, um, the calls were just one after another almost. And it was unbelievable how many calls we were getting across the country from families that uh, had a missing son. And as the media, rightfully or wrongfully, kind of, and I think it was wrong, that actually portrayed a lot of the victims as homosexuals, prostitutes, drugs, or, or whatever it may be. And the calls just almost stopped, uh, and people didn't want to be associated. I think with their their loved one being associated with Gacy, and it was totally you know untrue. I mean, Rob Peace, the last victim, was just this all American kid from an all American family, and there was a lot more of his victims that were the same way. And you know, maybe his first ones when he started out, and I'm sure Gacy was a little bit uh, worried, especially the first kid that he, he knifed. You know, and that was. Uh, yeah, and he uh, never, all the rest of them were strangled. And uh, I'm sure after he knifed that kid, um, he was worried. You know, he had contacts and all that kind of stuff, but he was kind of concerned. Somebody's going to come knocking on his door, and it never happened. And so all of a sudden, he came up with this system of his, and it was also self-protection, I think, the way he, when he killed him and put him in a crawl space.
0: Stories of Gacy having accomplices keep appearing in the papers as well. On January 8th, a story in the UPI, which is the United Press International, which means it ran worldwide, that I'm going to read to you verbatim so that I can illustrate what I was just speaking about. Chicago, a 16-year-old high school wrestler has told police a man he believes to be John Wayne Gacy made sexual advances toward him while a second man drove them around the area where Gacy lived. The youth is the second to tell police that Gacy may have had an associate in his sexual deviations, if not in mass murder. Searchers have found 29 bodies they suspect might be victims of Gacy, a twice-divorced convicted sodomizer. Sheriff police chief Edmund Dobbs said Wednesday that he was making arrangements to have the youth view photographs of Gacy's known associates. The youth said that he was waiting for a bus on a Friday night in early December before Gacy became suspected of mass murder when a car containing the two men stopped and offered him a ride. The teenager said that he resisted the advances and fled from the auto when it slowed for a stop sign a few blocks away from Casey's house. The youth was not identified. Two takeaways from this particular article. First, I felt like I was reading from the Bible with the sodomites and sexual deviation references. And second, why didn't we see any reports about this kid coming in and doing a photo ID of Gacy's known associates. I mean, nothing. No report. What in the hell is going on here? It's been really hard to get a truthful answer from anyone that we've interviewed about the accomplice angle. But I'll tell you what, as far as I'm concerned, the writing is on the wall.
3: Well, that, that's my opinion, the same as yours, that these kids are too street smart not to know what was happening, and they were getting property—not only the car—they were getting watches. They were getting a variety of other little things that they knew came from previous employees. Yeah, they weren't stupid. I, I honestly believe. Well, I know one of them killed himself. Graham did. Yeah, and I'm sure that had to be weighing hard, hard and heavy on him for a long time. So I, I, I don't believe. I mean, obviously, you can be wrong with all this stuff, but I don't believe. Number one. They helped him commit the murders. And number two, I personally don't believe that there were any more than thirty-three. Uh, I think he did mention something, you know, we where you know, we brought up uh Cram and Rossi uh, and his if ask him about if they were involved, uh and what was going on. And he said, Well, if they didn't know they were fucking stupid. And so, um, but it, it uh, and it, it's again probably something that I wish, after the fact, we got into a little bit more. But uh, um, you know they far dug far. the trenches, that's for sure. I still don't think um, knowing them like I know them. I mean, between Terry, Bill, and uh, even uh, Egan, um, Bob Egan, um, that there's been too much of a chance that come up and rear its head later on. You know something and so I um, I mean obviously they knew something was going on here but whether it was to that effect and being involved in it I just don't think so I don't because I don't think Gacy wanted to take a chance with getting too many other people involved because he just you know he had everything going great on his one side of his life was just this great guy and everybody loved him and the other side was yes. he was killing kids.
2: From the very beginning The police were after them like crazy. They didn't like him. Uh, I mean, uh, Rossi's driving around in six car. Uh, Yeah, well, and what he came up with all the title papers, and it turns out Gacy did all the signaturing. Gacy did all the forging, uh, you know. uh, Anyway. And the story was, I mean, Rossi's story was that Casey had told him that there was a guy that had been killed by an outfit, by the outfit. He professed always to be part, you know, a friend of the outfit. Uh, and that uh, that's why the car was available. But he forged all that stuff himself. And, we, you know, again, if he had. Taken the stand and let us into it. We were ready to put on uh, people to say to say that you know an expert to uh, say yeah this is all uh, John Gacy's work. But in any event, well here, here's the thing. Uh, first of all, you go back to the digging the trenches. They were not the only ones that dug trenches for bodies. There were other employees that were perfectly normal people that no one, no detectives or anyone suspected of anything uh, that also went down there and dug trenches. There were, uh, when they dug the trenches, and this is not only their testimony, but Gacy's uh, statements, in some, You know, I've seen all these recent things, all these tapes. I've, I've heard that all the, the, the uh, tapes from the PD investigators before, you know, etc., etc. But in any event, Cram uh, and Rossi uh, were told, along with, and one of these other people worked down there, the same thing that there would be, there, it was marked out. He would go down there and mark out with stakes and spray paint or whatever the exact lines that they were to follow for the insertion of the so-called drain tile and so forth. And if they deviated in the least amount from the prescribed plan, he'd go crazy because they were getting too close to a body. And not, now, not only did he say that, but they said that, and these other guys said that. Okay, so that's that's one. Now, could it have made should it should it or could it have made them suspicious? Sure. But do I believe they knew there were bodies buried down there? I don't think so. But in any event, the police were hot on them. Uh, now, my m- memory is, and I've heard since different people say different things about this. But My memory is that both of them were put on lie boxes, and they both passed. Now, I am not a big fan of the box. I have too many personal situations that I recall from cases, both as a PD and as a state's attorney, where two people, you know, would tell radically opposed stories, and both passed, uh, or when the same person, you know, would flunk would be corroborated by later found evidence to be absolutely right. You know, it just, it's not perfect. Is it a a nice tool for store detective managers and uh, employees? And yeah, sure, it's fine, but it's just not reliable in my view.
0: On January 10th at 9 a.m., the massive courthouse located at 26 in California is packed to the gills with press and onlookers, all hoping to get a peek of the freak show known as John Wayne Gacy. The courtroom of the Honorable Richard J. Fitzgerald is also crammed with humanity as the lawyers for the state and the defense file into the well of the courtroom. Fitzgerald takes his seat up on high, and the bailiff calls the court to order the hypnotic buzz of the people yammering stops instantly. The judge asks counsel to approach the bench. Judge Fitzgerald states, Let the record reflect that I am tendering herewith a copy of Indictment 73-69, charging the defendant, John Wayne Gacy, with having committed the offense of the murder of Robert Peast, deviant sexual assault of Robert Peast, indecent liberties with a child Robert Peast, and aggravated kidnapping of Robert Peast. I am also tendering a copy of indictment number 79-70, charging the defendant, John Wayne Gacy, with having committed the offense of murder of John Bukovich in two counts. Also, indictment 79-71, charging the defendant, John Wayne Gacy, with having committed the offense of the murder of John Zick. I am also tendering herewith a copy of indictment number 79-72, charging the defendant, John Wayne Gacy, with having committed the offense of the murder of Gregory Godzik. Bill Kunkel then informs the judge that he seeks leave to amend the face of the indictment as the killing of Rick Johnston, as his name was misspelled as Johnson in the original indictment. Leave is hereby granted the state to amend indictment 79-73 on its face, to read that John Wayne Gacy committed the offense of murder against and that he knowingly strangled and killed Rick Johnston rather than Richard Johnson as set forth in the indictment. Let the record show I am tendering here a copy of indictment 79-74 that the defendant John Wayne Gacy having committed the offense of murder of Frank Landigan. I am also tendering herewith a copy of indictment 79-75 charging defendant John Wayne Gacy with having committed the offense of the murder of James Mazzara. Amaranti pipes in at this point and advises the court that he will waive formal reading of the indictments. What this means is that the defense is not requesting that all of the language contained within the statutes that Gacy is being charged with be read into the record. Thank you, Mr. Amaranti. Sir, how does your client plead to the charged offenses? Well, what do you think? He'll plead guilty, right? I mean, the guy's fucked. Find out next time on Defense Diaries. And it's time for me to give some shout outs to the people that matter the most to the pod, and that's starting with my main man, Darren, who does all the magic behind me and makes this thing sound amazing on every episode. So thanks, D. Appreciate you, brother. And uh, we got to thank Taras and Ryan for all the amazing music that they put. It's all original, it's all produced by them, and it's always fantastic. So thank you guys for that. And also Alex Carver and Corey Ridings for all of our original art. And the merch is coming. So uh, you guys keep an eye out for that. And that art uh, most recently has been done by uh, Corey Ridings, who's an amazing artist. Has done some really cool work that we are going to be putting on all kinds of merch for you guys to uh, buy and enjoy. And to my amazing wife, Allie, who just brings it every single day and always supports everything that we do, we love you. And to all of our Patreon members, new and old, we love you guys so much. We thank you so, so much for your support. It means so much to Darren and I, and it's really keeping the lights on and keeping the show rolling. So thank you for your support, and please continue. And for those of you who haven't joined, join in on the fun. You're getting a lot of perks that the others just aren't getting. And finally to our regular listeners, we love you guys so much. And you guys know that without you, I'd just be some old man talking about an old case. Talk to you next time. Okay, we know where the body's at. We know exactly where the body's
2: at.